0: At the time of this recording, this show is coming up on its two-year anniversary, and that's been two years of interviews, starting with this same question made up of three simple words, Who are you? And although it's a short question, it's one of the biggest questions you could ever ask yourself. And thanks to the power of editing, you don't really see what happens behind the scenes when that question gets asked. But even the guests who know it's coming have long moments of silence and they have to think about it because who you are is not an easy question to answer and if anything it's the question you will be continually answering your whole life because who you are today is not who you were yesterday or a year ago from now and it's certainly not who you are tomorrow because god knows what could come up tomorrow things can change pretty quick so who are you Are you what you do with your time, or how you feel, or what you've been through, or what you dream about doing? And I think it could be a little bit of all these things, but when you're trying to figure out who you are, I think one of the things that easily can get overlooked, at least just speaking for myself, was overlooked in my case, is, let's say, the trauma your grandmother went through when she was a little girl. I didn't, because I walked around with what I consider a pretty reasonable belief that we all start on a clean slate. That's kind of what I was told in school. But what if that's missing a big part of the picture? What if your journey of becoming a whole you means looking back a little further? What if you've been looking for problems in your own little yard, but it turns out to be your ancestral neighbor (laughs) who maybe has some stuff that you need to focus on? Well, today's guest is Mark Wolin, and he's the author of a book called It Didn't Start With You, which is about epigenetics and inherited family trauma. And if you don't know what either of those things are, stay tuned. He's going to answer that question, and the book goes in even further detail. But here's what I would like you to know while I introduce this episode. Mark Wolin's book is one of the happiest accidents I have ever had in my professional career And this conversation is one of the most rewarding conversations I have had in my life. And so without further ado, here is my conversation with Mark Wolin that I'm calling You're Safe Now. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. This can be... As big or as small of a question as you'd like, but I always start this way. I love to hear how people identify themselves rather than come up with your own, rather than me write an introduction to you for you to tell us, who are you?
1: I'm a lead guitar player.
0: A rock band? <laughs> All my life. All right, we gotta got start again. Sorry,
1: Sam. I'm keeping that though. Yeah, you are keeping yeah. that, are you? That stays. <laughs> <laughs> who am I? Oh my goodness. We wear many hats, and for many years I've been the, what's been called the expert in inherited family trauma, the guy who's connected trauma language and epigenetics and healing from inherited family trauma. But as far as who am I, that question throws me. First thing that wants to come out is I play guitar, I write poems, take hikes, like love to laugh and love life. So say that, that's that's part
0: of who you are. Let it rip. Okay. We're gonna talk about your expertise, regardless of how you identify as a person. Yeah. Who, who you see yourself as when you close your eyes and you picture Mark is, is what I wanna hear. And it can be the lead guitarist and the poet.
1: I wake and I, I listen for language. I wake in the morning with either an image or some piece of language in my head that leads generally to a poem or to uh, a song. You know, it's hard to identify myself as with what I do. I, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm just about to go on a sabbatical. Really, the question that lives in me right now is, uh, what is it? Who, what is it I see? You know, I've entered the end zone. I'm 62. What I see is the last 20-plus years of my life. And the, the question that I'm juggling right now is what gives me meaning? And that's still a discovery, that's still ongoing. You know, just between you and me, that's really the question I've been living and I don't have an answer for it. What I've been doing has been a healer for many years. One who, as I said, connects trauma language, who helps people who walk with mysteries that they can't explain. And when we start again, that's what I'll talk about.
0: Mark, what you just said is exactly why I started this podcast. Because you could come on and you could do the Good Morning America pitch. This is my book. This is what qualifies me. And I want to talk about a lot of that. But your truth in this moment after the book was written, your reflection after you've been doing this work for 20 years, did you say?
1: Over 25 years, yeah.
0: Is going to connect with people on such a deep level. Because there are a ton of people. I don't consider myself a podcaster and that's what I spend most of my time doing, right? When I close my eyes, I see an artist, and I feel like there's some artistry to the podcast, but I feel like there's an artist who wants to write a book and draw and create things, and but that's not actually the things I'm producing. So it's the things I'm moving towards realizing, but to not connect with what you do is such a universal thing that I think most of us go through, especially if you're working for someone else, right? I don't know if you've worked for a corporation. How many people say, you know, I mean, I guess maybe if you work for Merrill Lynch and you're very proud of it, but how many people say, you know, yep, what I do in life and my purpose is to be a UPS driver. Yeah, no, I mean, we're all complex humans with a long story of how we got here and what we do when no one's watching and what we secretly like that we don't tell anyone and what we like very publicly and want everyone to know. I mean, it's that's what we're here to discuss today. And I would love to know, before we jump into your work, I'd love to know about this third act that you're yeah. that you're talking about, because it's fascinating to me. The work you're doing now to prepare and be aware of your mortality is probably gonna be the most rewarding and important work you do, even though I'm a gigantic fan of your book and the work that you've done.
1: The book had to be written. I didn't have a choice. Um, I was working with many people who, you know, walked, walked around with a mystery that they couldn't explain. They had anxiety uh, that struck suddenly, or they had depression that they could never get to the bottom of, or they had symptoms that arose following a, a trauma in their lives. And um, they, I was always the last person that they would see. Um, They had tried medication, they had tried talk therapy, uh, they had tried many, many things that brought some relief but never quite got them all the way. And these were cases that they couldn't connect any source. I I, I think what I'll do, Sam, is I'll tell you the first case that led me here because that's that's really blew my mind and I didn't know what I was doing. I was completely unprepared for it. (laughs) A woman... Uh, more than 25 years ago, a cutter, 24 years old. I'll call her Sarah for the sake of the interview. Sarah would cut so deeply that she'd almost bleed to death. Um, She would hit a vessel, a vein artery, and her parents would have to rush her to the hospital, and they'd have to stop the bleeding, and uh, they'd place her in a psych ward for about a month, and she'd get out and show up again for another session. Already, you have this strange... Um, what I later would call trauma language, this, this strange sort of language that was talking. What is it in the way that she cuts that makes her almost bleed to death? Why? I, I it, it didn't make any sense because many of the cutters, and this was a time I was working with lots of self-injurers, many of the cutters would cut superficially. For the uh, sensation, yeah, the feel. For, for, well, for, for myriad reasons, but the cuts wouldn't lead... Toma's dying. They'd be somewhat superficial, but Sarah would cut in her arms, her legs, her abdomen and nearly die. So one day when she came to the office, uh, after she had a stint in a psych ward, I handed her a pen and I said, Sarah, pretend this is your knife and show me exactly what you're doing as you do it. And all the sensations that arise, I'm going to slow you down as it's happening. And I'm going to talk to you as you're going through it. And she put the knife to her arm and I could see, you know, the color in her face change. And all of, she, all of a sudden she went white. And I said, Sarah, right there, what? Right there. What's that feeling, that sensation, that thought? And she looked at me and said, I, I, I deserve to die. I deserve to die. And here I am, Sam, I'm looking at a 24-year-old woman whose life has just begun. And I said, Sarah, what have you done? Did you cause a death? Did you cause a car accident? Did you break up with someone who took a life, um, his or her life? Did you, uh, what happened? And she said, nothing like that. So here I am with two pieces of what later I would call trauma language. But you have to understand this is the first case, case that leads me in this direction. And I don't put it in the book because of its, you know, it's, um, well, uh, let, let me tell the case. It's a heavy case, uh, but it, it was enough to really shift my thinking. I have two pieces of trauma language one verbal, which is, I don't deserve to live, and one nonverbal which is cutting so deeply and almost bleeding to death. So I did what I knew how to do back then. I asked her about her childhood. Sam, it was great. I asked her about her relationship with her mother. That was great. She was able to receive her mother's love and nurturance. And then I said, tell me about your father. And she goes, well, that was great. She was able to receive his love, his care. I was was flummoxed. I didn't know where to go. And luckily, I asked the right question. I said, "Uh, Sarah, tell me about your grandparents. And boom, you know, I hit the mother load without knowing I had done so because I I didn't know to look at grandparents or family members beyond beyond our childhood. Uh, I also asked um, um, about her attachment back then. Uh, I did know to do that. And it was safe, strong, secure with her mom. And so when I said, tell me about your grandparents, she dropped the bomb. She said, well, my grandmother was an alcoholic. I never met her. And my grandfather, who I never met, was driving in the passenger seat while she was driving. And she crashed into a telephone pole. And she lived. But Grandpa went through the windshield and got cut, lacerated on the glass, and bled to death before the ambulance arrived. And in that moment, she told the whole story. Here she was um, cutting herself in some way connected to the grandfather who did bleed to death. And here she was feeling like she didn't deserve to live the way the grandmother would have felt for taking taking someone's life, particularly the, the life of her beloved. Her dad was 12 at the time when his father was killed and his mother died when he was 20. And although he had gotten enough prior to that in order to be a good husband, good father, to to be loving, here's where the trauma, here's where the flow of love was blocked. He had never forgiven his mother. In fact, uh, if you uh, ask the father about his mother, he'd say, I don't want to talk about her because she took the life of his father. And he could never completely grieve the death of his father because connected to the death of the father are the terrible images of how he died and how the mother was at the wheel driving. So hold hold that on the side for a minute. At that minute, I said to Sarah, close your eyes, Sarah, and see your grandmother and your grandfather standing out there. Sam, look to your left. Do you see those uh, footprints over there, those rubber footprints? So I had her... I put them out in the on the floor of the office and had her close her eyes and visualize uh, that she was having a conversation with her grandparents. I said, Tell your grandfather what you do. Tell him that you cut yourself and almost bleed to death, and say, Like you, grandpa, I cut myself and nearly bleed to death the way you did bleed to death. And I had her at that point, I remember having her say, What's he doing? She's saying, he doesn't want that. He doesn't want me to do that. He's, he's saying to me, I'm here. Every time you feel that, every time you feel the urge to cut, feel me here supporting you. And in my work back then, I knew how to at least have her breathe um, into her body. This is 25 years ago and, and breathe out uh, every time she felt the impulse to cut. To breathe that impulse back to her grandfather with the words, "This, this never belonged to me. Th- this is what happened to you, Grandpa." And at the same point, I had her look at her grandmother and say, "Grandma, it's you who felt you deserved to die, not me." And I said that when you tell her that, what's she saying? What, what's happening? And in her inner image, she had an image of both her grandmother. And her grandfather supporting her, blessing her, telling her that this didn't belong to her, and actually giving her an activity, which later I would learn connected with the laws of neuroscience, how we, how we heal. I, I didn't know this at the time, but she would find an image powerful enough to override the stress response, the, the, the midbrain, the, the trauma brain, the amygdala uh, that she had inherited from in some way from her father, because this was his experience. He would be a 12-year-old boy who lost his father and lost his mother. And as I worked with her, she never cut again. But just to make sure, to add icing to the cake, I said, Sarah, why don't you bring your father into the session? And you sit over here on the couch and let me work with him. And I did something similar with him. I had him Put footprints of his mother and his father out there and had him told, I asked him, What was behind your mother's drinking? What do you think? And he said, Oh, that was obvious. She was given away into foster care when she was three. And in that moment, he developed compassion, empathy, love for his mother, which had been blocked by the trauma. And he could see, I remember augmenting it with sentences like, Oh, so any little girl without her mother, without, with, with, in terror, would later need to drink to calm the, the terror that she felt. And in this way, he could have compassion for his mother and he could love his father, grieve his father. So while Sarah's watching the session, I'm doing a session with her father where he's coming back into his heart. Around his mother and his father. And the beautiful thing happened after, at the end of the session, he stands up and said to Sarah, again, not her real name, he said, Sarah, you leave this with me. I've got this. Which was very, she let out a big sigh of relief because unbeknownst to her, she had been carrying the trauma for her father enacted in her own body through the cutting and the bleeding and the feeling. I deserve to die.
0: Wow. The topics of compassion is one that frequently comes up on this program. But what's new to this program, I think compassion is one of the great secrets of healing and of finding peace, finding more peace, I should say, because I don't think you're ever truly at peace. But one of the things that's brand new to this program is the work that you've done, which is inherited family trauma, is what we're talking about and epigenetics, which could you give us the, as you understand it, the best definition of what epigenetics is?
1: Yes, yes, of course. So when a trauma happens, it changes us. Literally, it causes a chemical change in our DNA, and this changes the way our genes function. And, and what we're learning is sometimes for generations. So when there's been an event The body will go through an adaptation. For example, uh, there'll be a signal, an information signal, what they call a chemical tag or an epigenetic tag, that attaches to the DNA and tells the cell, hey, this terrible thing just happened. Let's silence or activate or turn up or turn down this genetic material so we can have the best chance to survive this trauma. And that's what happens. To give you an example, if our grandparents come from a war-torn country with bombs going off, bullets flying, uniformed men lining people up in the square, people being taken away, people being shot, people being terrified, our grandparents would develop a what would be called an epigenetic adaptation, what I'm going to call a skill set to help them survive this trauma. For instance, they might develop a skill set of sharper reflexes, quicker reaction times to help them survive this uh, experience. And that's what they're passing forward. Uh, They're passing forward a stress response, this skill set, but it's out of context. Here we are a generation or two later with a, a war reaction. A terror reaction to policemen or men in uniforms or loud sounds were ducking and, and our hearts going off uh, when all of a sudden we hear a car backfire. And we're having this stress response to war. In other words, we've inherited a stress response with the dials set to 10, waiting for a catastrophe that never arrives. And, and, and the thing, Sam, we don't make the link we just think that's how we're wired we walk around thinking that's just the way i am I've, I've always had anxiety i've always had depression as far as i can remember or i've always been scared in public and we don't think to connect our shutdown our depression our phobia our fear our anxiety with our parents experience and our grandparents experience we just think that's the way we are um so you know, one of the reasons I even wrote the book, um, It Didn't Start With You, is to turn on the light to get people to see, because we're all walking around with this mystery that we can't explain, and to get people to see that maybe that mystery didn't start with us.
0: One of the, my favorite things about this field of science is that it's really it's like confirming in the scientific world things that people have known for a while like if you look at a lot of the spiritual traditions they'll make your biggest defects no longer bad right and so they'll say that perfectionism that crippling perfectionism that you have is not a monster inside you even though it abuses you even though it hurts you it's something trying to help you and so we have all these things from survival right from when food was scarce. So we want to shove our faces with calorie dense food because food was scarce or when literally giant cats that would pick us up off the, off the plains of Africa. And so we have a fear of the unknown of the dark. And so to me, at least it confirms that some of our biggest struggles are a misguided way of our bodies trying to help us. And so, where you say the person who came in a, a war-torn country, their grandchildren can have this survival response. It's really a it's it's something that is trying to keep that person alive, even though the outcome is so horrific in the actual person's life, who is in a peaceful country. And my favorite study of this, which I think just paints a clear picture, and I forget what it's called, but it's where they had. The first generation of these chickens, I think, in the open, getting picked off by these natural birds of prey. And then they took the next generation and completely sheltered them from the birds of prey and let them breed again. I wish I could remember the name of this let them breed again until there was a whole generation separating the chickens that had to worry about these birds of prey and these new chickens that were inside. And they ran a silhouette of a bird of prey above them and they all had an emotional response they all intuitively knew this was bad. And and there was no way, they they weren't taught that.
1: Right, you know, one of my favorite studies is the study done at Emory Medical University where they made male mice fear a cherry blossom-like scent. And uh, what they did is they, uh, every time the mice would smell the scent, they uh, shocked the mice. So the mice in that first generation already had epigenetic adaptations, when they looked at their brains, they saw that there were enlarged areas in the brain so which could support a greater amount of smell receptors. So the mice could detect the scent at lesser concentrations thereby protecting themselves. So what they, there was also changes in the blood and in sperm. So the researchers thought, okay, let's see what happens if we take some of that sperm and injected into female mice who were not shocked. And let's look at the progeny. And the amazing thing is what happened in the second and third generation. The mice, just like you said, became jumpy and jittery, just like the chickens, just by smelling the smell and never experiencing the shock. They had inherited the stress response without directly experiencing the trauma. You know, the reason we look at mice, mice and humans have. Over 90% of a similar genetic makeup, over 93, I think 92, 93% of the genes in humans have counterparts in mice with over 80% being identical. Plus we can get a generation of mice in 12 to 20 weeks where it takes 12 to 20 years to get a generation in humans. There's so many mice studies and rat studies that we're looking at right now. And that's one of the ways that we can see that there's a three generation link in humans, we can show a two-generation link. In fact, right now, right as we speak, there's a woman in the Brain Research Center in Zurich named Isabel Monsui, who's doing some amazing work right now. She's looking at the the blood samples of Pakistani orphans that through the recent war in Pakistan, recent wars in Pakistan, I should say and she's discovering that there are changes to their fatty acid structure and changes to what they call the small non-coding RNA molecules. And these changes in these orphans are similar to what we're observing in the mice. Uh, The Dutch researchers are doing the same thing right now, looking at combat veterans and looking at their blood. Isabel Montsouy, she's looking at the survivors of the terrible Nice attack when that guy drove that van and killed 80 people. They're looking at the blood of the survivors, and they're able to now see cross-correlation between the affected DNA, not, not, the, not the strand, but how it expresses in the survivors and able to correlate it with what uh, they see in the sperm of mice. Yeah, I mean, pain
0: and trauma is just another word for very painful events that shatter your worldview that you had built up. That's my favorite definition of trauma. You're constantly constructing a view of what reality is, yeah. of what the world is. And a traumatic event is anything that breaks it. So, if you have a worldview that people can be trusted and your best friend steals from you, that's a traumatic event. And it's easy to downplay and go, ah, that's just one bad thing that happened. But in that moment, your view of reality was broken and had to be repaired with now only some people can be trusted. And in my own life, unfortunately, I didn't listen to the wonderful examples of good advice that was in my life. I had a very hard set of years that was only caused by me not listening to really good advice. It wasn't that there was an absence of good knowledge. It was that I just didn't listen. And pain has taught me most of these lessons the hard way. I only became a good boyfriend because I was such a bad boyfriend and I caused so much pain to myself and others. And your journey, which I think is, you know, I. I keep. I want to keep talking about the research, but I also really like to talk about the, the qualifiers, you know? And so in an alcoholic, I like to know, why did you decide to stop, you know? Not how great it is to stop, because that's a fun conversation to have as well. But from reading your book, which is called It Didn't Start With You, it sounds like the story starts when you lose your vision. Yeah. And could you take us there just yeah, for yeah, a bit? Yeah,
1: absolutely. You know, I it, it's a story of being lost, um, in my 20s, not not having any clue of where I would go and what I would do, and um, again, suffering with anxiety and depression much of my life, as far back as I can remember. And that uh, would mostly be expressed in relationships, a terror of uh, being afraid I'd be left, never understanding why, and then having all these defensive strategies that would hurt people, of course, Um, because I was afraid I would be left, never connecting it to anything, Uh, to the point where my fears are so opaque, so disruptive inside me, that I begin to lose my vision. And I go to the doctor, and I'm told that I have a rare form of retinopathy, a chronic form of retinopathy, and only 5% of this particular type of retinopathy is chronic. And, And in my case, it was. And the way I was losing vision, um, I was told that I w- was going to lose it in both eyes. I'd already lost a major chunk of it in my, my left eye. And I didn't really know what to do. I, Western medicine told me it was stress. You have stress. Limit your stress. But what does that mean? Well, for me back then, it meant everything. I quit my job, left my city.
0: You quit a business, you had started. Yeah, yeah, I yeah.
1: A very started. successful business, actually. <laughs> okay. I just
0: wanted to highlight that you weren't yeah. leaving a job.
1: No, no, in, no. I You left uh, Yeah, I owned a business that I ended up literally giving the keys to somebody um, who ran it into the ground within a year and, and just went on a journey, a search for healing. And what that meant for me at the time was any book that I read I tried to work with, there wasn't an internet back then. It was hard to find these people. But, you know, if I read a book that moved me, I'd have to make phone calls. Um, There was, you know, this was 1990-something, or 90, actually, and I'm 91, I think, is when it started. And, And I'm looking for the authors of books to study with them. And I ended up studying with some profound teachers. Literally, I ended up going across the world, ending up as far away as in Indonesia, Indonesia, um, studying with these spiritual masters who, oh, the funny story I tell in my book, I hate to tell it here because it's in the book, but I'll tell it. You know, I wait in line all day. I'm a meditator at this point, thinking I'm such a wonderful meditator because I can do it for many hours on end. And I get to the front of the line. I think it took eight hours to get to the front of the line. And as soon as this teacher looked at me, Literally he looked at me, I should say, right through me and saw what I couldn't see, and told me to go home and heal my relationship with my parents and i i was I was aghast, I go, what you know, because I had replaced my parents with all these spiritual parents, all these spiritual teachers and um but I heard it again, same thing, similar it was a almost almost replica of this first situation. And finally I did go home and I had to heal my relation my very broken relationship with both my parents.
0: I wrote down unresolved anger, blame, brokenness. I wrote down those as words to describe feelings that happened between you and your parents.
1: Yeah. I remember the feeling um when my mom would hug me, although I could never tell back then what it was connected to. I would learn that later. When my mom would hug me, it felt unbearable. Like I just thought I would explode when, when her arms were around me. But here I was going back to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to heal my relationship with my parents. And before I could do that, I had to heal what stood in the way, which was inherited family trauma. I just didn't know it at the time. As I kept deepening in this healing with my parents, I would discover why my parents weren't very good at parenting. I loved them. They were lovely people, but weren't very good at parenting. And so as I looked behind the curtain, I saw that each of their parents, each of my grandparents, had been orphaned in some way. Each of them had lost a mother when he or she was a baby or an infant or a toddler at the eldest. In fact, one of my grandmother's, my mother's mother, she lost her mother at age two, and then her father was kicked out, blamed for the death of his mother. My other great-grandmother fell through the ice when my grandfather was a young boy. My other grandmother died in childbirth when my other grandfather was five. My other one died as a baby as well. So here I was discovering that this fear I had of intimacy, this fear I had of being left, this fear I had of connection didn't just come from the break in the bond that I had with my mom, which was one place, but it started with her. With the love that she couldn't get from her mother, who was orphaned, and the love my father couldn't get with his mother. And I was, in a way, healing generations of pain, generations of loneliness, generations of terror, of being left. Uh, the feeling I had is being broken from my mother's love. I remember. Oh my gosh, Sam, as a little boy, five years old, running into my mother's room. I think I talk about this in the book. And as soon as she would leave the house, I would run into her room and pull open the drawers and cry into her nightgowns and scarves, thinking that I'd never see her again. And all I would have left was her smell. And I was trying to breathe in her smell. And this was true for each of my grandparents. All they did have left was their mother's smell. I, I, I told my mother this 40 years later. I said, hey mom, when you were gone, I used to cry under your clothes. And she said, um, that's funny, I, I did the same thing when my mother would leave. And my sister reading the book said, honey, I did the same thing when mom would leave. I'd cry under her clothes. So this, this almost, this epigenetic uh, stress response, very specific, mom leaves, opening a drawer and crying into her clothes. This was what inherited, this feeling of being broken from a mother's love. And this set the stage for my vision loss.
0: It's just wild. So one of the first things that happened when I read the earlier parts of your book, where you're really diving into this, you're really talking about the specifics, what the specifics look like of inherited trauma. It started to, I've been having a very tough time with my own mental relationship to my mother. My mom was a public figure. She was very well received and adored. She wrote about parenting, so she was adored as a good parent. And if you had asked me a year ago, that's what I would have told you. And it wasn't until I had a therapist who really chipped away at it that I even realized how angry I was. There's something about reading about it and having to it's like when you first start to realize what's true what's there is when you first start to heal so you almost i almost have to get through this anger like i have to feel this anger for once because it's been repressed and i and i told my mom and we cried together you know because it's just at this point it's what happened and we both love each other that doesn't mean that we always like each other but I have, like you say in the book, like my mom's always said, it's an inside job. Like this healing is really part of it, an inside job and to try and break some of this generational stuff. You know, I this is the first time in my life, Mark, that I asked my mom, what trauma did you go through? Huh. It's the first time I Great ever Great question. I, I knew parts of it. But I knew parts of it through just anecdotal stories or just, you know, things that were kind of told to me. But I have never said, mom, what trauma have you been through? What trauma did your parents go through? Because in the book, you specifically talk about the three three generations. You know, the, the three generations basically share a body through one point. My grandmother and my mother were in one body at one point, and then I was in my mother's body. So there's this literal physical sharedness between those two. And it was wild to think about it in context to go, maybe it's possible. You know, I'm very, very skeptical. So I don't embrace things with open eyes. And so when I read your book, it was more of a maybe it's possible, which I think is a great Place to be. I said, maybe it's possible you were so terrified about being shamed by other kids because your mom was shamed her whole life for her frizzy hair. She had like African American hair in a waspy white neighborhood. She was called the N word. It was very constant and painful. Maybe you get so harsh because your grandmother was so harsh to your mother and your mother in turn was harsh to you. And so there's the physical thing that we all know, right, where it's like you've, you've been raised by this person and it's you're breaking the cycle. But to think of it on a deeper level as it's not just a bad habit, but it is a genetic inheritance that can be worked with. You know, I don't, I don't wanna paint a terrible picture for people. Oh, it,
1: it can be worked with. Yeah,
0: it can be worked with if these horrible events can change your genes or change your genetic code. What it hints to, which is another pretty related field, neuroplasticity, that things are plastic. But it is the first time that I ever said, what happened to your dad? There's a few things with my son that are starting to make sense. You know, he is terrified about being abandoned. And as far as I can tell, I've never left him alone for a prolonged period of time. I could never understand it. You know, he'll scream for me and I'll be in the other room. I'll be like, Jax, what's going on? Like, I love you, dad. That's what he always says, but what he's screaming for is to know I'm still there. For once, I thought, well, maybe his mom isn't constantly leaving him alone, because I always thought that was the case. I said, maybe it's because I was abandoned, not just at birth by my father, but he came back when I was nine and then left again.
1: Did you just say that your dad left when you were born?
0: Yeah, he was never around when I and was,
1: came back when you were nine.
0: He showed up again. when So, I was can nine.
1: I throw a few ingredients into the pot? Yes, please. Okay, I don't. I don't know that we want to put this on the recording. We do, we do. Oh yeah. Okay. So, if your mom gives birth to you, is that when your dad leaves?
0: When she was pregnant.
1: When she's pregnant. So, in, visualize her pregnancy with the fear of where did he go. I'll have to go through all this alone. Oh my God, I'm having his baby. He's not going to stay. What if he doesn't stay? All that, those inner sentences, they're felt when we look at the work of Bruce Lipton. The mother's thoughts, feelings are communicated through the placenta and can influence the child and change the even the genetic expression of the child. So just at this level alone, her fears, her terror would feel like a separation for you not only that it would be met with a chemical barrage of cortisol every time she's in terror or fear there would be a could be a cortisol barrage of i'm alone my relationship's over where did he go i can't go through this alone how can i support this baby when those thoughts are there the the baby experiences an absence of the mother's attunement. Even though the mom may have done her very best, just those thoughts alone can be difficult for the fetus. So it could create a break. So when I'm working, it could create a break in the attachment that's so early, it can't be remembered. And your mom can be the greatest mom, the greatest parent. Yet, if an event like this happens during pregnancy, we learn, as I mentioned in my book, that we have to look at attunement as starting from conception forward. So all the events that take place during the pregnancy are meaningful. Are the parents fighting? Is someone drinking? Is someone cheating? Is someone leaving? Did somebody split up? Did somebody feel fear- Or did mom feel fear or terror or financial responsibility or um, all these things that could have affected her attunement to the fetus? And this could have created a break in the attachment. So that's one variable I throw into the pot. And then there's others. Remember the mice studies? The most replicated study in all of epigenetics are when they separate baby mice from the mother, and see the effects for three generations so your mother's disruptive disrupted relationship with her mother your father's relationship with his mother these are heritable so if you or your son feel a disconnect with the mother or a, or a disconnect or you said your son screams out in terror or fear or a feeling of aloneness or abandonment this we don't know whose trauma We are living. That's the point I try to make in the book. When I'm working with somebody with trauma, my first question is, whose trauma are we working with here? Whose trauma are we reliving? Just to hear that story, dad's gone for the first nine years of my life, and mom is alone without the support. Does this affect me in utero? Does this affect me during the the early years of my life? Chances are maybe, and how it also affects us as physiologically with a cortisol barrage when she's in terror. That's felt, the fetus can feel and react to mom's stress in the form of that cortisol barrage. I think I talk about this in the book, that the child even develops cortisol-busting enzymes. I think I mentioned that in the book. Um,
0: uh, yeah, I, I do. you do.
1: Yeah, so... Yeah. And, and it could be what we're talking about. Your son's terror could be your father's terror of being left by his mother or your mother's terror of being left. And I'm talking- She was just left Im- and adopted. Yeah. So. Oh, your mother was adopted?
0: No, my son's mom was adopted. Oh, so well, 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 there you go. There.
1: So your, your son's mom was adopted. He's, he would know something of that adoption epigenetically. Remember, that's what's being passed down for three generations. Her stress response to the adoption now becomes his unwanted, unwilling inheritance.
0: Understanding this is helping me have so much more compassion. And if people are curious, what is the most important thing I've learned in these two years since I've been doing this podcast? And really, Seeking, although I I have a funny line that you wrote down about seekers, is compassion and kindness first towards yourself. First towards yourself, if you have a behavior you wanna change, change it compassionately, not with abuse. Don't yell at yourself in the morning to go to the gym, it won't last long. And there's a few other areas, you know, especially when we talk about race in the country, we're not living in a time with Jim Crow laws, but to understand it through epigenetics is that even if, Even if, for the sake of imagination, we were on a completely even playing field and all the prejudice in the country was gone, understanding it epigenetically would say people aren't going to get over it tomorrow. You know, that the healing has to happen through generations of healing. And that's a wonderful understanding to have. It's a wonderful understanding to have when you meet assholes, you know, when you meet people who are, for whatever reason, acting out. And I think this research is going to hopefully, hopefully change the justice system and the penal code. Because if you look, I just talked to Father Greg Boyle who runs Homeboy Industries. It's a gang intervention program. I lived across the street from projects. And I would hang out with the kids at the park when I would take my son and nobody had ever drawn with them. I would bring, I went from me sketching to me bringing pads of sketch pads because nobody had ever said, here's a sketch pad, make whatever lines you want on it. And these are the people who need this kind of compassion and healing the most and who need to understand that it's not all their fault and to approach it with some grace and some understanding. So I'd love to get to the hopeful bit, the bit where me as a person who's trying to self-actualize, as somebody who's trying to, we talked about in the very beginning, maybe when the mic was off, we talked about you entering your third chapter. I'm starting to think about how I want to live the rest of my life. And part of that means healing. I I don't just want to move forward career-wise. I want to heal. For instance, what my son inherited is so already done. He inherited a mother who was very stressed, who was not financially in a place to take care of a kid, who had a boyfriend, me, who was in school and a complete asshole, who was an active alcoholic and drug addict. We fought all the time. Insane toxic fights, not just arguments, but insane toxic fights. You know, my son was raised in a crazy, chaotic household until we split up. And then after that, he was raised in us fighting for a couple of years. And so the the damage, I hate to use that word. I'm going to change that word. The inheritance is inherited. And now I always have this fantasy of having another kid with a stable woman, with me being stable and us getting a chance to really raise a baby in wholeness. But what's true is that I have a child. I have a wonderful child who I would like to see also self-actualize and live the best life you can as I want it for myself. And so when we talk about the hope bit, why you chose to write this, When I don't think you chose to write this as Chicken Little telling us we're all doomed. Uh, no, not but at all. But you chose to write this based on healing that you believe can happen. And I would love to talk about what that healing is and where, where it starts, what it looks like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big believer in the in the image, the experience. And I always have been, I mean, I, you know, my background is uh, as a poet. And, you know, the, in, the image makes the poem. You know, I talk about this, I, I think even in the book where I talk about the right language, the right timing and the right image. And as far back as I can remember, um, I, I know it lives, we live, we, we sail, we expand in these images. I remember I was always moved by a William Butler Yeats quote, I, "I know I put this one in the book that for every man and woman, woman is this one image, if we just really i 'm going to paraphrase here, but if we just deep into it, surrender to it, give ourselves over to this image that will heal and i 'm terribly paraphrasing it doesn't say that at all, but um, how we heal is we have to believe in something. We have to have something mean something to us. We have to practice something that has a great relevance to our soul. So it can be an experience. We talked about compassion before. It can be a practice of compassion. It can be a practice of generosity, going out on the street every day and giving, um, making sure we do one special thing for somebody each day, the way you did so beautifully when you bring the sketch pads to the playground with these kids who never sketched before. I mean, that, it's heartbreaking and a beautiful story all at the same time, Sam. But this idea of, um, you know, I talk about in the book, How We Heal is, you know, most of the clients I talked about had, just like Sarah, that I gave you the, the thing, she had images of support and comfort from the grandparents, um, it can be a practice of loving kindness or gratitude. You know, Oprah always talked about having a gratitude practice. Well, why? Because what it does is it changes the brain. All of these experiences that I mentioned, comfort, support, loving kindness, generosity, the others, I can't think of them right now, allow us to enter another part of the brain that competes with the stress brain. So we we have this overactive amygdala this this part of our brain that through evolution has allowed us to survive we know this from trauma and and this trauma brain is always scanning for threats and always remembering what's negative and always orienting toward what is negative to keep us safe oh don't do that don't go here this could happen don't trust him don't trust her and that trauma brain thinks it's helping us we talked about this earlier but we need some experience some image that can compete with, that can override this trauma response, literally by pulling traction away from the midbrain and bringing it to other parts of the brain, specifically the prefrontal cortex, where we can integrate and heal. When we do this, when we have this practice of compassion or mindfulness, or this practice of feeling Sarah's feeling supported by her grandparents, or I often have People who have difficult relationships with their mother practice not with their mother in real life because they're not ready for that yet, but to take a photograph of their mother and to place it over their left shoulder above their pillow in bed at night. And as they fall asleep, to look up at this photograph and to say the words before they go to sleep Hey, mom, hold me when I'm sleeping and heal the break in the bond that happened between us. Teach me how to trust your love, how to receive it and how to let it in without taking care of your feelings. You know, I have people, you know, I I, uh, uh, tailor the words to the specific person I'm working with, but that can be a profound experience. So each night we try to heal our It might even work for your boy. We have this difficult relationship with our mother. And so we have a photograph of her over our left shoulder above our pillow on the nightstand. And we say these words. And then we go into the sensations. We start practicing the sensations and feelings that come with this new experience. What does my body feel now as I visualize my mom holding me? What energetic thing am I noticing in my body? What wave, what current, what temperature, what color? is there right now as I visualize this experience. And when we do this, we pull traction away again from that evolutionary part of our brain, the negativity bias, as it's called, and start bringing engagement to the prefrontal cortex where we can heal, our brain can change. Not only that, uh, we're talking about rewiring on one level. So every time we start to feel this negative experience and pair it with a positive experience. We'll go back to Sarah. Every time she's about to cut, she feels her grandfather saying, no, you don't, I'm right here. Just feel me behind you. And she starts to tune in to that physical feeling she gets when grandmother and grandfather are there, or dad says, I've got this, leave it with me. She begins to practice feeling something positive in place, of feeling the anxiety, the terror, the impulse to cut, and when she does this, she's not the dendrites of the, the old pathways start to wind with the dendrites of the new pathways, and the accents start firing, and we begin to build create new neural pathways, new neural structures in the brain, New neuronal structures. That's one part of it. Not only that, we also begin to stimulate the release of feel-good neurotransmitters in our brain like dopamine, which we're missing, or serotonin or GABA. Or even feel-good hormones start to release in our body, like estrogen or oxytocin. Or even the way our genes express, we're now learning, can be changed. Some of the most interesting part, and to answer your uh, question, what's new in science, is what they're doing with these traumatized mice. They're reversing trauma symptoms. And the way we're doing, they're doing that is they take these traumatized mice and instead of keep subjecting them to shocks... They put them in positive, low-stress environments, and two things start to happen. The, mice's be, the mice behaviors start to change, and the fearful epigenetic signatures are less likely to be transferred to the next generation. In other words, the DNA methylation, which is one of the mechanisms, or the small non-coding RNAs, something shifts in what's transmitted. And the next generation receives less of these epigenetic mechanisms. So we can break the cycle. In fact, that's what I talk about in my book. It isn't just chicken little weed. The first part of the book is you become a detective, you diagnose your own trauma symptoms, you look for and listen to and uncover your own trauma language, both verbal and nonverbal. Then you do your genogram, your traumagram, and you lead back to where in your family history, these where's the root? Where's the source? And in the third part of the book, you learn practices that can change the brain, literally can change the brain so we can heal, that finally explains why we feel the way we feel, and, and then we can do something about it.
0: It's such a beautiful process because it encapsulates so many of the things I have picked up along the way where the first part, the detective phase, is a not only a chance to acknowledge, which to me is one of the most important things, is that when you're talking about the neuroplasticity, the brain creating new pathways, stronger pathways and letting other pathways die, what you're talking about isn't spiritual bypassing. It's not ignoring the trauma, it's the exact opposite. And so I've always, there's toxic optimism is what I call it, toxic positivity, which is like, don't feel bad thoughts. Don't feel it, feel good thoughts only. And it is missing the most important part, which is to be whole. And to be whole, you have to welcome everything to the table. You have to welcome the trauma to the table and then try to find a way. Like you said, you literally put your hands together and to Bring in the positivity into the trauma, not to avoid it, not to cover it up with bondo and sand it away and pretend that there's not things underneath there, but to actually make it whole and to then as creatures of meaning and narrative to change your relationship to it. To the second phase, which is the gratitude, which is the practices of trying to, I dated a neuroscience scientist, a uh, neuroscience student, excuse me, once. And she always said, I'm, I'm pruning my brain garden, you know, <sighs> which always, you know, I'm, I'm not just letting weeds grow. And it's really like about being conscious, you know, when, when I panic about being a failure, when I panic about money, not to just let it sit there rent free, but to say, hey, excuse me, I see you. I see you there. You're in my house. What's up? What are you you trying to help me? Are you trying to get me to make more
1: moves that help me monetarily? I love that you're saying this because, you know, I see the trauma symptoms as a, as a form of communication and I see that we're being led by the trauma symptoms and they are communicating with us and to us. And if we Love them. Bring them in, like you say. Bring them into our house. Trust them. What are you trying to tell me? Where am I being led? These trauma symptoms and the contractions of the trauma are really gold, because in the very contraction of the trauma is expansion waiting to happen. So it's repeating and repeating for an opportunity for us to find that expansion. Um, I, I often think those of us that were given all the gifts of life early, aren't always necessarily the most interesting people. It's those of us that have gone through the mill, that have had to uh, live inside the questions, live inside our traumas, live inside the terror and the fear. It's a form of creative expression to heal. And when we follow this language, we learn to listen to it. And, and, And this is really, you know, my message is so simple, Sam. We, we walk around spouting a verbal and a nonverbal form of trauma language. It, it's so clear. Some of the questions I ask in the book, and everybody has an answer to this. You know, what's your worst fear? If the worst thing happened to you, if things suddenly fell apart, if things totally went south, if, if things just came undone, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? What's your worst fear? And people give an answer that goes in one of two directions. They either give an answer that hints to early trauma language, like a break in the attachment that's either ours with our mom or our mom's with her mom, our dad's with his mom. And that language is, I'll be abandoned. I'll be alone. I'll be rejected. There'll be no one there. I'll be left. I'll be annihilated. I won't matter. I won't exist. It's that type of language that goes, that just by hearing it, you can tell that that language goes in that direction. So when I'm hearing that particular language, I'm saying, I'll probably be working with my client and his or her mother, or what lives in the family of a disconnect with the mother generationally. Now, there's another type of language. It's the answer to that same question. What's the worst thing that could happen to you? I'll hurt a child. I'll be hated. I'll do something terrible. It'll all be my fault. I won't deserve to live. I'll kill somebody. I'll lose control and I'll hurt people. And that type of language, you can hear it. Where did that come from? That type of language has a generational quality. Where somebody did something like that, most likely, either to our family or our family members did it on the opposite to someone else. And we can be connected with either side of that language, either as a victim or a perpetrator. And this is the type of generational language that leads me to say, oh, as I'm working with this person, I wonder who went crazy, who went to jail, who did something terrible, who hurt a child, I remember working with this woman one time, she was consumed with anxiety and was never able to separate herself from the anxiety. She was in terror. And as I'm working with her, I said, let's slow it down. We're going to slow the anxiety a ta- down a bit so we can embody and feel what's really going on. And I remember saying to her, let's, one of the questions was, when was the first time you felt this way? She goes, I, I don't know, six, six, seven months ago. And I said, what happened six or seven months ago? She goes, well, that's when I got pregnant. Oh, what is it about being pregnant that scares you? What's the worst thing that could happen? She said, I'll harm my baby. And finally, she got to the source of, of this anxiety. So I said, did you ever harm a baby? She said, no, no, I didn't. And then I said, did anyone in your family ever harm a baby? And she was about to say no. And she went, oh, and she said, my, my grandmother When she was a young woman, she lit a candle, which caught the curtains on fire, lit the house, the house caught on fire. She couldn't get her baby out on the second floor and the baby died. And then she said, but we were never allowed to talk about it. And this is such a common experience, Sam, when traumas are difficult, people tend not to talk. They think, don't tell our kids about this. What they don't know won't hurt them. And it's actually contrary. What we don't know can hurt us. In fact, what we don't know can have the greatest effect. So for that reason, I tell parents to gently tell their children what happened. You know, your, your son will have to know his mom was adopted. And these types of traumas, and your son will have to know, uh, perhaps, that when you were in utero, your dad left, and it affected your mom's um, peace, her inner peace. Yeah, this becomes part of the archaeology, the archaeology, the landscape that we can build off of. It becomes beautiful. Oh, that's why I feel this. That's why my children feel this. That's why the reason I always felt that. You said it yourself. Once we uncover the that's why in part two of the book, um, it's very healing. And then we bring it into our home, just like you said. We bring it into our home and we live with it. And rather than push it away, we we listen to the rest of the trauma language and see where else it shows up. And then we find a healing experience or a healing image that we're willing to practice. Because it's the practice of the healing sensations of that healing image or that healing experience. It's the practice that changes the brain.
0: To have the courage to ask the questions, the real questions of your greatest fears, of your greatest desires, and to follow the train of logic to follow it to its end is one of the greatest things you could ever do for yourself i remember working with jonathan gustin who's the first guest of the show he's a therapist turned purpose guide he didn't you know he's he stopped wanting to hear about mommy issues and he started wanting to help you figure out why you're here and we were talking about money i remember one of the questions after you know i expressed i would like money i would like a lot of money he said great what would happen if I gave you all the money you needed? Then what would you do? And I was, I was taken aback. I was like, well, I don't know if yeah, I had this plan of how I was going to make the money. I'm like, well, I don't know if I would still do that. Yeah, I don't know if that's actually what I would do. And so people often find themselves wanting things, but they don't know why, or they find themselves afraid of things, but they don't know why. In the case of wanting, people often want to be rich, but why? Well, for me, in my own case, I've tracked it down to freedom. I want freedom. And that freedom doesn't necessarily have to cost a ton, but wow, is that a difference from what if I had chased wanting to make money in a way that actually stole from my freedom, not knowing that that's why I wanted it to begin with. And the same can be true about your fears. What are you afraid of? I'm afraid to lose everything. What would happen if you lost everything? Because we have these Traumatic fears. But the, the, you know, Seneca, the, um, um, I'm blanking Seneca, who is uh, one of the Stoic philosophers, used to spend a couple days a month homeless. He used to take everything and he'd go homeless to remind himself, and I'm not saying that people need to do this, but to remind himself that if everything went wrong, if he lost his house, he couldn't predict that he would be forced to kill himself by the emperor. But if everything went wrong, he would be okay, that he could find a way to survive and hopefully build his life back up. And so to, to ask the questions is such an important part of the work. I was wondering if while you're here, the end of the book has tons of practices if people are unable to work with you. Um, which I imagine are you still taking clients? Yeah. But yeah. I imagine that's cost prohibitive for a lot of people. And so the book gives away some of these practices. Yeah. I was wondering if for the sake of the conversation, we could do some sort of little exercise Absolutely. for the listener. And just if you're listening right now, maybe take a few deep breaths and just hear Mark and to let him guide you for a moment.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So put your feet flat on the floor. And earlier in the podcast, I asked you what your worst fear was. I asked you, what's the worst thing that could happen to you if things suddenly fell apart, if things went terribly wrong? What's the worst thing that could happen to you? And whatever rises to the top, whatever answer comes about right here, find the sensation in your body that accompanies that fear, that depression, that sinking, that terror, that anxiety, and bring your hands to that place in your body, wherever you feel the feeling of that fear. And if nothing comes, just put your hands where you know you have, you carry your sinking feeling your depression, your anxiety, somewhere on the core of your body. Maybe one hand goes on your solar plexus and the other on your heart or on your belly and your throat. And as you hold those places on your body, visualize that you're holding a young child part of you. Because you are. Whether that part got wounded young Or whether that part's inherited and the stress response of your mother, your father, your grandmother, your grandfather, however it got to you, it now lives in your body and you're the one who can do something about it. So you hold that young, fragmented, split off part of you that's expressing with sinking, terror, fear, anxiety. Bring your hands there. And now, where you're holding, bring your breath there too. Bring your hands and breath to that part of you. And tell that part of you, it doesn't have to be allowed, say inside, I've got you. I've got you, you're safe. And I'll breathe with you. until you feel safe. Until you can let go. I'll breathe with you until we no longer feel alone. I'll hold you so we don't have to hold our body so tightly. Basically, I'll breathe with you until you're integrated inside me. Until you And I are one.
0: That was really beautiful. Thank you for that.
1: You're so welcome.
0: So Mark, you've been incredibly generous with your time. And this has been an incredibly rewarding experience to get to meet you in person and to get to pour over your book. Thank you for writing it. Thank you on behalf of the listeners that are going to find it because of this program and are going to write me and tell me how grateful they are.
1: Thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me.
0: So i like to end this way. If I could hand you a phone, and on the other end of it was you at your most needing and vulnerable time in your life. And that could be wherever you like. It could be when you were young and helpless, or when you were old, you know, when you were adolescent and needed desperately needed guidance, or when you were slightly older and in the depths of your fear before you started to go on this journey. What is the message you would say to that person that they could hear and that they could carry with them until they become the man that you have become today?
1: I would tell that part of me what I just helped the listeners find in themselves. I would say to that young part, I've got you. I'm here. I've got you.
0: You're safe. Thank you so much. Hey, so that's the end of this conversation. But if you don't want the conversation to end, you can follow us on social media on almost every platform. We're at HelloHumans.co, except for Twitter, which has an underscore CO. Our website is HelloHumans.co. We have great stories, videos, and the episodes live there as well. And for more of our guests, for more of any of our guests, I always post their social media, their books, their videos, their art in the show notes, which is another word for the podcast episode description, and it's available wherever you're listening. I promise you just have to click around. If you'd like to help us out more, there's a few ways you can help. Please share this podcast with your friends or people that you think would get value out of it. Writing us a review on iTunes is incredibly helpful for our ratings. And also, of course, this program is not possible without Listener community contribution. So, our patrons are our financial backbone of this product. That's how we manage to do this ad free. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com/slash howtohuman. That's P A T R E O N.com/slash howtohuman. This is the How To Human podcast, a production of HelloHumans.co. Until next time, have a great day.